0: I know, I can last forever. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to A Reason for Hope Candid. We're very excited to have Father Dwight Longenecker on this episode. He spent several days here with A Ray of Hope, filming his series Beheading Hydra for our channel, recording several podcasts with us, including this one, and participating in a speaking engagement for our diocese here in Newark, New Jersey. It was really a pleasure having him around. Our executive director, Mario Costabile, interviewed Father Longenecker on a previous podcast episode titled Understanding Our Secular Age, where we learned more about his background. In particular, how he moved to England and became an Anglican priest. Now, you may or may not know that Anglican priests are allowed to be married. Then over a 10-year period, he was inspired to become a Catholic priest. He received a dispensation from a bishop in the United States, allowing him to become a priest and still be a married man. Mariama, Ryan, and I had the opportunity to just sit down with him and ask him questions about what it's like to be a married Catholic priest. We hope that you enjoy this candid interview with Father Dwight Longenecker.
1: Welcome back to another episode of A Reason for Hope Candid. We're here with Father Dwight Longenecker, who's been in the office today, and he's had a lot of fun stuff that he's been doing with us. We have some fun upcoming projects, but we decided to ask him some candid questions um, about his life and his upcoming projects uh, and get a little more real. That, look at that! Jack's ready. He's ready to dive in. <laughs> he's so, got his father, backwards
2: hat. <laughs> yeah. He's he's too
0: candid, man. Yeah. He's too candid. <laughs> too candid. <laughs> I'm just trying to be like AB.
1: There we go. <laughs> All right, father, you ready? I'm ready. Awesome. Okay.
0: All right. So yeah, thanks again for being with us, father. Um, so in our previous podcast uh, where you were interviewed by Mario, you were talking a little bit about your conversion story yeah. and um, and what it's like to be both married and a priest and so you're in an extremely unique position um in the catholic church where you're experiencing two vocations and it's uh it's amazing and uh and and we learned that it's 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 more so um it's not doctrine it's uh a discipline a discipline and that that is the reason for the exception so what do you think for you has been the most beautiful
3: parts of living out both vocations. Well, first of all, just on the lighter side, you know, after I was ordained as a Catholic priest, I was interviewed about this for the National Catholic Register, (laughs) and the person writing the headlines that they must have had a bad day, because (laughs) Mrs. Longenecker has taken the headline, cut it out, laminated it, and put it on our fridge, and it says... Married priests favor celibacy from personal experience. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, but that's her joke, okay, not mine. Uh, anyway, it's a good question about the two vocations coming together because the church hasn't actually discussed this and looked at it very much in very much mm-hmm. detail because usually we think that marriage is going to conflict with celibacy or uh, and you hear people say, oh, you know, my our celibate priests—they're available twenty-four-seven to serve God and serve the church—and mm. I'm saying, well, you don't know them very well because you know what—they have days off too, yeah—and of uh, they find it difficult to get up at three in the morning to go and anoint somebody, mm. yeah. which is fine, mm. um, but. Uh, the situation between uh, how does the marriage and the celibacy complement each other. In fact, we forget that the sacrament of orders and the sacrament of uh, holy matrimony are the two sacraments of service, mm. and therefore they're, they're grouped together. And so they do actually complement one another. And I would say that being a natural father has helped me to be a spiritual father um, and vice versa. In other words, it's the role of fatherhood. Yeah is very important in our society today with a lot of guys who are opting out uh in all sorts of ways and so to learn how to be a father and to accept that role as a man and to uh sort of exhibit exhi- be an example of that role for my parish and for my kids has been a, a wonderful opportunity.
0: Yeah, I well I guess uh I don't know if it's a really accurate analog but but Peter the the apostle was married, right? He had a mother
3: in law so he must have had a wife right exactly right.
0: absolutely well so this brings me to my next question and it it reminds me of uh a meeting I had with uh a priest and um it was before. so I, i'm engaged but this is before i'm talking before my engagement um i was uh I was speaking with with the priest and it was like you know you know you could be called to marriage jack, but at the same time you could be called to the priesthood because I guess he was seeing in me a, a a thirst for knowledge and theology, because I do find it fascinating. We were talking about C.S. Lewis right before this. Right. And he's one of my favorites, as you had said, he's one of yours. So, he, so I said, you know, Father, I, um, I, think I'm, I think I'm definitely called to marriage. but I was like, sometimes, sometimes I feel like I'm called to the other. And uh, I discerned out of that um, as I'm engaged now. But what struck me is that he was like, well, it could be both. I didn't really ask him what he meant by both. Um, And so, I guess, a deeper question for you, Father, and for our listeners, is what advice do you have for people who are trying to discern their vocation
3: uh, within the world? Well, first, I think the question of your priest saying you could be priest being called a priest and marriage. I think Catholics sometimes, with our sort of veneration of the priests and the clergy, can fall into a kind of clericalism. Very often, the clergy are blamed for clericalism, for putting themselves up on a pedestal. Mm. But in my experience, the people kind of um, corroborate that, they, they collaborate with that. Mm. And the people can put the priest up on this pedestal as well and forget that actually. Um, in the New Testament, says that we are called to be a royal priesthood. And the Protestants have this idea of the priesthood of all believers. That does not mean the priesthood of each believer. What it means is that the church together operates and um, um, exercises Christ's priesthood in the world. Mm. So, part of the call of all of the baptized is, in a sense, to be a priest in the world. So, what does the priest do? The priest does what Jesus did when he was here. He um, teaches the truth forgive sins, takes authority over evil, uh, and heals the sick. Well, all of the baptized are called to actually participate in those ministries according to their own charism and their own personalities and so forth. So, we are all called to the priesthood in that respect. And anyone who claims to be a Catholic and who forgets that is forgetting part of their basic calling. And that might actually help um, with the second part of your question, how does a person discern their vocation? Well, they're called, first of all, they have their primary vocation, which is to exercise the ministry of the baptized, to do what Jesus did when he was here, to heal the sick, to forgive sins, to take authority over evil, um, and to teach the truth. So that's the primary vocation we all have. How you actually do that is your secondary vocation. Mm. For a lot of people, it'll be through marriage. A lot of people, it may be through their work or their career, but that's what we're all called to do. So maybe that's an answer to your question.
0: hundred percent. And and the only um, thing that I ran across that really helped me to gauge what the priest I was talking to was saying was, and what you were talking about reminds me of it. I remember reading uh, one of Dr. Scott Hahn's books, and he said that every priest is called to be a father, and every father in the vocation of marriage is called to be a priest right. in, in a certain sense. So. Uh, the priest uh, in the religious life is a spiritual father to all his spiritual children in his parish, in the church. And the father, with actual physical children, um, uh, he's called to to bless them and anoint them
3: and raise them in the way of, of Jesus. There is also a complementarity between the celibate ministry in the church and the married ministry in the church. I heard someone explain it like, like this. He said, the celibates are showing the married what it is like to be totally consecrated to the Lord Jesus, mm. and the married are showing the celibate what it means to be married uh, and totally um, dedicated to the spouse. Mm. And so, um, th- and because the celibate person is married to Jesus, so yeah. Yeah. the marriage sh- the married showed the celibates how to do that, and the celibates show the married how to be totally dedicated to Jesus.
2: Well, I mean, just jumping off that, do you see that, I know a lot of people always ask this, but um, do you see that changing in the church in any at any point in the future of priests being able to well, marry you know, her?
3: I think uh, no, <laughs> 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 uh, but I, I think one of the things that. Um, people sometimes forget when they consider all this are the practicalities. If you actually try to make this this decision only along practicalities, like can we afford priests or how much time will it take up or how big a house does he need or things like that, I can give you examples when married clergy are actually a great advantage to the church. And then I can turn around and give you exactly the opposite arguments on the other side. So Mm -hmm. the practical arguments are not really the ones we should be concerned with, because they can go either way. Mm However, um, the call to be especially dedicated to the Lord within the celibate priesthood um, is a unique one within the Catholic Church and one which we need to continue to value. However, if the church should decide that more married men could be ordained, especially older married men who's, who have a, a proven marriage which is secure and who perhaps whose children have grown up, um, I think that could be a step forward. Especially as a lot of men are living longer, you know, some of these men could be ordained in their 50s perhaps and have another 20 or 30 years to serve the Lord as a priest. Wow. The other thing which we have, which a lot of people aren't aware of, is a number of men who have been divorced and uh, received a decree of nullity about their marriage are also going in for the religious life and the priesthood.
2: Wow. Okay. Well, hey, That's that's good news for. Uh, <laughs> and they, they,
3: as well as some widowers, also <laughs> right, right, also yeah, bring yeah. experience of marriage and family life into the priesthood. Yeah. One yeah. of the one of the local parishes
0: we go to for noon mass here. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the priests is a is a widower. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember the first time he he was introducing himself to us. He was like, you know, oh, like. Please don't be scandalized. You know this is a, <laughs> I'm I'm valid priest here. You know, yeah. and, and of course he is. But it was my first time actually running across a widower priest.
3: When our kids went to Catholic school when we first moved here, and they were still school age, one of the questions was, "Do you have to call your dad Father Father?" <laughs> <laughs> Do they? <laughs> no. <laughs> my, their nickname for me is Padre. So that's close. Oh, oh that's nice. great. So cute. Yeah,
2: that's great. Very nice. You you touched on it in the other podcast. Um, about how you know, sometimes people, especially when it comes to confession, have their reservations with going to a priest that's married for confession, and, and other people actually enjoy that because they feel more connected um, yeah. in that way. Can you talk a little bit more on that? I know we kind of touched briefly in that podcast, but um, do you find that some people have a hard time uh, viewing you as uh, a priest in that moment, and that's why they, they kind of would rather go to a, uh, a celibate priest? Um, that's only or,
3: happened once or twice oh, okay. with older people who are very traditional right, in, their, right. in their in their mindset. Um, they couldn't get their head around this innovation, which I respect that. You know, sure. it's, it's a big jump for some people. But the vast majority of people have accepted it with no problem. In fact, in our parish, my parochial vicar is a former, is a married former Lutheran. So, um, when people in the diocese were worried that where they were getting too many married priests, I said to mm-hmm. the bishop, put them all in one parish. I said, and keep us safe and keep everybody else, uh, <laughs> everybody else is safe from us if we're that dangerous. <laughs> so. Wow, that's awesome. And you know, you're here promoting your book,
2: uh Beheading Hydra: A Radical Plan for Christians in an Atheistic Age. And we we went through all the isms of the book and all the trouble with our modern world and and um the lack of faith in in our modern world. Um I know you had you had mentioned that materialism is kind of the root of all of mm-hmm. these things. Is that true? Would you say that the the main leader of the lack of faith of just people kind of making that step towards faith is the unseen, the material, which, as you described, isn't necessarily like, you know, a fancy watch. This is like $10. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, a car is physical things. Yeah. But the unseen of, of just being so kind of, I guess you could say, like, in the matrix a little bit. We don't see the false world in front of us. Is that kind of the root and the beginning of us being so detached from faith these days? Yeah,
3: as one of the things I've tried to explain is that in the modern world, we're in a very unique situation that in every society and every culture down through human history— Everybody has believed in the, what I call the transcendental. They've believed in a superior spiritual realm, um, whether it was the gods and the goddesses or the demons and the angels, whatever mm-hmm. it is, whether it's primitive people, pagans, sophisticated people, in every culture, everywhere, pe- human beings have believed in the transcendental. We now live in the 21st century in America where the basic assumption is that ain't true. There is no mm-hmm. other invisible world, Okay. Mm-hmm. And how often do you hear people in, in, in the basic media sort of assume that, that, assume that when they say, oh, yeah, you believe in this, you know, the flying spaghetti monster, or you believe in <laughs> angels and fairies, do you, and Santa Claus too, mm-hmm. you know. So there's this assumption that if you believe in the invisible transcendent world, you're somehow crazy, uh, okay. This is what's crazy, because the vast majority of humanity down through the ages has always believed in the transcendent.
1: And therefore,
3: yeah. um, there's always been the religious element of humanity. Someone has said, maybe we shouldn't be called homo sapiens, we should be called homo orans, which means uh, humans who pray rather than humans <laughs> who, who think. Oh. Because the religious instinct is actually far more basic than the rational instinct.
0: And it, it's so ironic that so many people are into the occult and the demonic and, and you know, trying to contact someone that they've lost through a, a, a seer or a you know, uh, a witch or, or whatever it may be. And it's like, wh- why is it that they are able to grasp that and believe in that spiritually, but not, but not go further to see, okay, here, I'm believing in something spiritual. Right. But, but also, okay, there is a difference between good and evil. Maybe it's, maybe it's the surrender in Christianity
3: that's the, the problem that they can't get across. I, what do you... Th- well, this is the other thing. I don't really believe the elite media... Okay, the elite and educational media purvey this idea that if you believe in the transcendent, you're somehow weird or ridiculous or insane. In fact, the vast majority of human beings today also still believe in the transcendent. Look at horror films, look at the horror media, look at superhero movies, look at all the popular culture. The basic assumption amongst most ordinary people is still, yes, there's life after death. Yes, we believe in God. Yes, there's a heaven and hell. Yes, there's something else out there. OK, yeah. Thus, the interest in aliens and demons and all yeah. sorts of other things. OK, yeah. yeah, because people instinctively believe this. So I don't believe the elitist media who say that it's dumb. I believe the vast majority of ordinary people who still <laughs> do believe in the transcendent.
2: It, it's an interesting point. I've always thought that with what you just said, that with horror films and, and and you know, there's ghost hunters shows, there's alien shows and whatnot. <laughs> why do you think that it seems to be more believable Yeah. that? that Satan exists, that the devil exists. It seems like people are much more open to, um, that side of entertainment and, and just questioning that versus the minute you say, you know, do you believe in God? They're kind of like, "Ah, I don't know. That seems like a spaghetti guy. It seems absolutely ridiculous. But when it almost seems like evil is so much more believable than God, sometimes maybe because we turn on the TV and it's, you know, five people murdered down the street and you're like, Oh gosh, you change the channel. Then it's, something else. and It's kind of like our world is just constant dread, feeding dread, that is that part of it? Why do people feel more drawn towards dark energies?
3: This is a really than, good question yeah. it's really fascinating because to me, in fact, you're talking about the good supernatural and the bad supernatural, yeah. the light supernatural and the dark supernatural, right? Why don't people see the light supernatural? I believe it's because the world is so good and there's so much of it and there's so much human goodness, there's so much supernatural goodness, there's so much angelic activity, there's so much redemption in the world that we miss it, okay, Mm -hmm. because it's always out there. It's the weird, twisted, kinky, dark stuff that detracts our attention because it is weird. It is different, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, Take, for example— You might have a godly grandmother, okay, who's an absolute saint, who's always doing good things for people, who's an absolutely marvelous Christian person. Everyone would say, oh, she's a marvelous Christian person. Isn't she wonderful? But they would not say, she's filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, because they take mm-hmm. her goodness for granted. Mm-hmm. However, if you have some uh, niece who started dabbling in the occult and starts going around wearing black clothes and black fingernails and getting spooky, everybody will say, Ooh, what's wrong with her? She's, right. she's weird. She's, well, she's going into the dark side because she's being weird, because that's been attract- attracted mm-hmm. to her. So we don't see the goodness around us, but we do see the evil
2: it's weird that it again i I, just, I get so it's confused ironic. by that it is ironic that it people can define it they can see they can be like oh I felt yeah. a weird energy with that and that's so dark but when it comes to goodness people are more like ah eh, they're just The other
3: thing about this is goodness is always natural, okay? What is natural is always good, and therefore we don't recognize the goodness within it, okay? If you're out in the forest on a beautiful spring day, it's natural. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. It's good. The sunset goes down. You praise God if you're a Christian but because you see the supernatural goodness within it. Most people don't. They take what is natural to be natural and ordinary, but what is evil and dark is always twisted and dark, and therefore it attracts Mm -hmm. our attention.
2: Would you say that there's again now flipping that on its ear? Do you do you think that there's a good thing in that? Also, that people are able to recognize evil more um, clearly than the good, or is that always a bad thing? Because it can be if you know you can if you can recognize it. I guess then it's your choice. Do you follow it or do you say hey, I got to stay away mm-hmm. from that? But is there a good in that? I know we had, spoke, we yeah, had spoken earlier about a kind there's of There's an awful interesting thing. story
3: by the English novelist Graham Greene, and he sets this all up, and he's in a train, and this guy tells the story about how this man in black stepped into the carriage and sat next to him, and he was wearing all in black and was, you know, had a, was dressed up to here with a black scarf on, and he was kind of spooky. And they got talking about God and atheism, and the man in black was being very mysterious. And uh, he uh, finally said, oh, yes, I believe all of that, he said. Uh, and then the the, 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 questioner said, well, why do you believe all of that? And then he revealed that he was a Catholic priest and he said, because I'm an exorcist. <laughs> oh. Oh. Wow. <laughs> okay. In other words, it was the evil that's that he funny. saw, which actually drew him to believe in God and the good yes. and give <laughs> his life to, 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 to serve God's service. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So that answers yeah. that question.
1: Well, if there's like an extreme, like evil, right, that's present, there has to be an extreme opposite. And all goodness, yes. Yes. right? So if we follow the logic of there is evil, there must be the exact opposite. But it's harder to see, as you said, Father, because it's natural, right? Like how often, right, like you were saying, we're in nature and we're like, oh, we're not like taking in the moment as much because it's just our every day. Even when it's rainy, it's like sometimes the rain smells good, right? It's just like natural. Um, but I kind of wanted to touch a little bit on this like idea of uh, all the isms. And you said materialism, is the uh, most pervasive ism, which I found interesting because I've I've been hearing a lot, right? Or we talk a lot about relativism, which is just like you know this idea of you do you, it's whatever you want to do, your truth, whatever. And I work here at Array of Hope in social media, and I all of us have social media, probably uh, most people who are listening probably have social media, and it's like it's almost bred this idea of relativism because you see. All of these different opinions, people, everyone has opinions, right? And opinions can be confused for truth. Um, and so I have a few questions for you. One, how do we discern fact from fiction, truth from opinion? And then secondarily, it can be really hard, as you know, as uh, someone who converted to Catholicism, which I'm sure you felt the weight of doing that, of that decision, but also just being Catholic in the world today, you can receive a lot of backlash and spiritual warfare on top of that. How do you remain convicted in the truth um, and discerning of it in a world that's so hostile to it?
3: Well, about first of all, about the truth and opinion, um, I'm not a great fan of Jordan Peterson, but I picked up some of the stuff that he said. He's he's a great prophet of our time. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that stuck with me was he said, in his sort of penetrating way, he said, What if you never told a lie? He said, yeah. I, I decided early in my life, he said, that I would not lie at all about anything. Yeah. So I took this on. I was thinking, Yeah, actually, I tell little white lies all the time, you yeah. know, and I thought, I'm going to take that on board. I'm not going to lie. And that very afternoon, I was late for a parish meeting mm-hmm. and I sort of breezed in five minutes late and I said, I'm sorry, the traffic was really bad. And then I said, no, actually, there wasn't any traffic. I'm late because I was wasting time on the internet. I'm sorry. I, li- I lied to you. And yeah. everybody laughed, you know, yeah. because we, I, I was making telling little white lies, um, yeah. you know, just to make life a little bit easier, to ease mm-hmm. somebody's feelings or whatever else. Yeah. And so first of all, I would say with Jordan Peterson, don't lie, not okay. ever, about anything. Mm. If you can't tell the truth because it might hurt somebody, just be quiet. Okay, Silence mm-hmm. is a great virtue. We learned that from the monastic tradition. Um, so the more you do not lie yourself, the more you will be attuned to truth. You will mm-hmm. sense truth. You will have the wisdom to understand truth. The spirit of truth will be with you. Mm-hmm. So you will be able to understand truth and you will also have the courage to speak truth. Um, I sometimes look at Jordan Peterson and think all the sort of bricks he gets thrown at him. And I wonder, how does he do it? And I thought, no, he has discovered over the years that as you tell the truth, you get more courage to tell the truth. Mm -hmm. So that's really the cornerstone of the answer to your question. Okay, yeah. And the pursuit of truth in my own life, um, and therefore, not only tell the truth all the time, act on the truth. Once you act on the truth, you will be able to discern the way forward. You will be able to discern the truth of the gospel. When you hear the truth, your ears will perk up and you go, yes, that's true and that's false. Yeah. You'll be able to discern these things if you yourself are living the truth and speaking the truth.
1: Mm, that's a great answer. And we have the the example of the many saints in the church. As you heard, I have a long litany of the saints that yeah. we pray with. And like the martyrs did not lie. They did not, they were fused to tell a lie that Jesus Christ wasn't, right, Uh, or refuse to tell a lie to give up their faith just for worldly comfort for a moment because uh, I've been trying to exercise. I I like Jordan Peterson, too. I love psychology. I studied it. And I really am convicted in a lot of the stuff he talks about. I'm like, oof, yeah, I probably should not lie. (laughs) You know, and, like, it's really challenging. It's almost scarier in your head when you're trying to do a virtue because virtue <laughs> is what God wants and Satan likes to lie to you. Um, so there's those evil uh, things that are combating things as well. But we do have the saints as great witnesses. The martyrs especially are very convicting in the fact that they went to their death. Right. The blood of the martyrs are the seed of the church. We don't know who said that quote. So.
3: Tertullian. OK.
1: OK. OK. So father knows. Good. Because I just can't. I couldn't find that. But um, yeah, the martyrs are great examples of how to live virtue to the end and courage and truth. And we are current day uh, saints to be hopefully and so through social media, attempting to be so. Do you have any advice for people that are using social media, um, and trying to be virtuous and how to kind of sift through the truth? What is good? Any advice for social media users out there? Well,
3: not only to be committed to truth oneself, like I've explained, but also to be immersed in the truth of the gospels and the truth of the, uh, of, of the teaching of the church. You know, just turn off the screen and read the Catechism of the Catholic Church, read the writings of the saints, read the sacred scriptures, and you will immerse yourself in truth, and you will begin to recognize. Read the epistles of St. Paul. They're so loaded with truth stated so profoundly. Once you begin to immerse yourself in the scriptures, and this is what I'm grateful for from my evangelical Bible background. We had to memorize Bible verses, okay? So when you immerse yourself in the scriptures and the teachings of the church, you also will be able, you're putting up all of the filters in your mind and your heart mm-hmm. to be able to understand the truth that's coming at you and you're right it's coming at us from wikipedia from movies from tv from social media from billboards from advertising all of it and 75 mm-hmm. of it is lies okay yeah. it's mm-hmm. just lies dressed up in very attractive ways and we have to have the the ability and the brains and the heart and the knowledge to filter through it
1: yeah awesome i have one more question before i hand it back to the boys this is just a fun one for my personal reference uh who are your favorite saints I want to know.
3: Okay. St. Therese of Lisieux, (laughs) St. Benedict of of Norcia. Okay. And I've written a little book called St. Benedict and St. Therese, which compares their two lives together. Also, um, I'm always discovering new saints, okay?
1: Yes. I love this. (laughs)
3: So, um, I've recently really become attracted to uh, St. Gemma Galgani.
1: Yes. uh,
3: And also um, St. Gabriel Possenti, Mm. two young uh, Italian saints who... I came across them because someone gave me a relic of St. Gabriel Passenti. Yeah. And then I read that St. Gemma Galgani had a devotion to him and thought that she was healed by his intercession. So I then Mm -hmm. read about St. Gemma. So I've now got a relic of St. Gemma as well. That's so.
1: amazing. Wait, is St. Gabriel, St. Gabriel, of Sor- Our Lady of Sorrows, is
3: yes. he also known? Yes, that's St. Saint, Saint Gabriel Passenti, yeah. yes.
1: Oh, his feast day is the end of this month.
3: It is. Yeah, yeah.
1: the 28th, I think.
3: Yeah. Uh, so, I'll well, take that first crest is. relic and have it on the altar that day. So. Right. That's so oh, fascinating.
1: Wow. I love this. Yeah, St. Gemma is also awesome. They're both young. Yes. 24, right? They're part of that 24 club where the saints died at 24. Ah. St. Therese, you, you really have a club of friends Saint that are Therese, in the 24.
3: St. Caterita Cacuitha.
1: Yeah, died, died at 24. Yeah. Yeah. They're all so awesome. It's amazing, like, I mean, as someone who has surpassed 24, I'm like, wow, to be so convicted in holiness. Like all of their stories are amazing. Saint Gemma, I mean, was a right, she was a mystic. She had so many suffering experiences. Same with Saint Gabriel of our Lady of Sorrows. He lost he experienced so many sorrows in his own life. To to take that um and and understand that it was God's permissive will in the moment. I think that's the the connecting. Factor of St. Cateri, St. Therese, St. Gabriel, and St. Gemma. All of them understood their suffering was allowed by God for their holiness. And I think that is so difficult in our time, which probably adds to the isms, right? The materialism adds to the comfort, right? We, want, we desire comfort, and in America, we're very comfortable. I mean, I order my Starbucks and if it's not ready on time, when I get there, I'm a little perturbed. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, like, Yeah, these saints go against the grain. Um, And
3: St. Therese also had this ruthless honesty about herself and her situation. St. Therese is is beautifully, simply, innocently honest, and it just cuts right through to everything.
1: Yeah, Yeah. and she delivers it with such a sweetness that you— At first, I think, well, I didn't like her at first because I was like, she doesn't understand my life. And then you realize she suffered a lot. I'm going to have to give
3: you a copy of one of the books that I helped to edit, which is called Stronger Than Steel. Yes. And these are remarkable um, letters from soldiers, Mm -hmm. young French soldiers. Have you heard about this book? No. Yeah, Letters from young French soldiers in the First World War who wrote letters to... Back to the uh, Carmelite convent in Lisieux, Mm -hmm. recounting the visions they had of St. Therese and the dreams they had of St. Therese and how she appeared to him and protected them in the the battlefield. One of them in the artillery unit was actually so um, convinced of this that he gave relics of Therese to all of his members of his unit and they named their cannon the Little Flower
1: that's so cool yeah no definitely pass on that book because i will she is she's one that i'm warming up to i like the other teresa's she's the only one in the four that i'm like she's a little too sweet for me but i think that what i'm learning is she was she was very um strong in her convictions and she told the truth without being afraid she was
3: tough yeah Yeah,
1: she was because she knew she had such an interior life that the truth and transmitting the truth was more important than um feelings if I, I don't know how to say it otherwise like the, sen- the, you know, centi- the sentiment the yeah. sentiment she was like the like yeah the salvation of souls was most important yeah
2: beautiful well, thanks for the social media I only know uh, a lot about Saint West just Saint uh <laughs> Kardashian <Yeah. laughs> so, uh,
1: <laughs> oh, we that's didn't get our, that over here yeah that's where
2: <laughs> we're S. but yeah. so we did the two podcast episodes we did before this um were about since you know we're engaged we did it about marriage and discernment and and being engaged and whatnot. So I guess we don't really get to ask this uh, to too many priests uh, who are married. But uh, <laughs> what would your advice be to? What's your advice for a, a, a good marriage? You know, I know it's such a basic question, but I think you you have
3: obviously experienced the duality of. of what of, is my advice for a good marriage? Yeah. To make a good marriage. Yeah. To make a good marriage. Yeah. Don't marry the wrong person. Hmm.
1: Mm.
3: Okay. Um, and
2: what, what makes, I guess, what makes the wrong person in a way in discerning that?
3: Well, I was engaged to the wrong person first. Okay. And what helped me to break that engagement was someone said to me, uh, Dwight, he said, is this the person if you had a free weekend that you would f- call up to spend it with? Hmm. And I had to say no. And he hmm. said, not the right answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, it's a real simple com- bit of common sense. Do you actually like being with this person? Mm-hmm. Some people will get engaged or they'll get into the wrong in relationship because they feel pressure to get married, um, either within themselves or from, from their family or from their friends or from their peers. Uh, and so they'll hook up with somebody who will do, somebody who seems suitable. Not good. Mm-hmm. So um, you have to like being with that person and you're going you're gonna to be with them for a long time. Okay. <laughs> and I've counseled some uh, one young guy, I remember, I said, um, look, a, a similar sort of question, I said, look, you're going out with her this Friday. Who's looking forward to this more, you or her? And he said immediately, her. And I said, not good. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> okay, mm. so it's a real bit of simple, simple common sense. Also, um, does this person make you laugh or not? Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Uh, and second question, does he or she make you laugh at yourself? Mm. <laughs> yeah. The answer should be yes.
1: Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Sound good? i got to make a call. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> 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 oh,
1: <Just> Corinne. <laughs> totally
3: kidding. Totally kidding. Uh, no, that's, gr- that's great advice. Yeah. Awesome. And when I ask these questions, usually the young person will go, okay, yeah. In <laughs> other words, you've affirmed me. But sometimes mm. they'll say, okay, right. <laughs> I need to pull the plug on this. <laughs> yeah. It's like
1: they needed affirmation that something that something was off.
3: Yeah. That if I ask those questions and and the answers are the right going in the right direction, they're saying yeah, this will be good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if I ask those questions and they're not going in the right direction, then they'll say, mm. I need to pray for the courage to pull the plug on this. Yeah. Yeah. And it's
2: okay to ask that question, though. I think a lot of people are afraid to even ask themselves that mm-hmm. question because they're like, am I because I'm asking this? Is this a sign that I I don't want to marry this person? But I think it's. I think that's totally fine. You should be, just as you would with your yeah. faith, constantly, a daily Absolutely. checking
3: in with yourself. Um, There's a big reluctance am, amongst young people in their 20s today to make that commitment and to actually look to, uh, and I understand that. Um, my Our oldest son is in his late 20s, and um, he'll say, you know, I might live to be 80 or 90 years old. You know, I'm going to live longer than, than your generation did. This relationship might have to last for 60 or 70 years. And I'll say...
1: Yep. <laughs> mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is good because he's taking marriage seriously. You know, he's mm. he's not actually going into it saying, well, if I don't yeah. like it, I can get a divorce. Right so, right. so that's good.
0: Yeah. So um I, I have one other question for you, Father, because we're running out of time here. Um, and it's a question regarding evangelization. Uh especially because here at ray of Hope we're so um engulfed in trying to evangelize uh the people of the faith and people who have left the faith because it is the new evangelization after all. And you mentioned Jordan Peterson, who uh, I'm, you know, I, I, I love Jordan Peterson. I, I think he is, I mean, he's, he's helping people in, in a very powerful way. And it's almost like he's the bridge, uh, not the bridge, but he is a bridge between the atheistic world and the theological world or the spiritual world in a really weird way. Um, and I, I don't know if you saw his interview with, with Bishop Barron. Um, he did a couple of them, but I, I just remember in that interview, he challenged Barron and, uh, I, I can't remember how the bishop responded, but he challenged him and he said, you know, why is it that so many people are, are leaving the church? And how is it that, that, that we as a church aren't able to hold on to those people? And, you know, while we see a secular person like Peterson, who may have converted, may have not, and, and is, that's, that's his own heart drawing people back, you know, healing families, healing relationships. And it might be a little bit of the I, you said in the other interview, um I can't remember the third part, but moralistic therapeutic deism. Deism. It 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 seems like it might be a little bit of that like self-help kind of kind of deal. And and not to bash any of that because that is great, but but if you don't have God in it, it's it's like not the it's you don't get the full healing, the full fulfillment of joy. So I guess my my question is, you know, why is it that A secular uh, phenomenon is drawing people back to their faith. I mean, even me, to to a certain degree, drawing me to my Catholic faith even deeper than than even more so powerfully than some Catholic writers or theologians or priests or uh, uh, mystics, what have
3: you. Jordan Peterson has a great ability to speak, first of all, to be honest, like I said, but also to speak common sense. He's saying mm. stuff which people are not saying, but everybody knows deep down. Yeah. Okay. Like clean your room. Okay. Amen. Yeah. And stuff like that. <laughs> uh, and so he has a huge appeal for that because our world is so full of lies, like I've been saying in social media, entertainment, so forth. So mm-hmm. he speaks straight to people and nobody else is saying that stuff to, to people, which yeah. is which good to hear. But also he has a deep understanding mm. of the connections, between psychology literature uh and mythology and therefore with religion yeah Mm. yeah this is also one of my big my big interests as well is uh popular culture literature films television and so forth and where we are seeing and sensing the transcendent within those those media and nobody else talks about it but jordan peterson does yeah so he does these great seminars for instance on you know the meaning of Peter Pan. Yeah, Disney movies. Yeah, and stuff like that. Yeah, and people going, whoa, this is really interesting stuff, or, you know, what's really going on in the story of Little Red Riding Hood or yeah. something, you know? Yeah, and people really King. Latch yeah. onto that, you know, yeah. uh, which is which is really valuable and a great way to be um, evangelizing. Mm. I've tried to do it a little bit with my um, YouTube channel, which is called Myths, Monsters, and the Mysteries, Ooh. drawing together the paranormal with monsters and literature and myth, and then connecting it with the Catholic faith. Very cool. I just have to find the energy to do a few more episodes. Oh, you've yeah. got to keep doing yeah. it. That's you awesome. You gotta but, let us
1: know so we can watch them. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So it's 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 a value it's it's a it's a very potent mix that he's put together mm-hmm. there, which is popular for people. And the fact that he is not speaking as a priest mm-hmm. um is in, in is to his benefit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I, I think one thing that um I think uh,
0: Baron actually brought up was early on in his life. Um, in schooling, even in Catholic schooling, theology uh, class or religion class. In Barron's class, or in Peterson's? Uh, Barron said this, yeah. Barron said this, that in theology, religion class, that he, it, it was the equivalent of, like, a gym class. Like, the teacher wasn't conveying the severity or the seriousness of theology, of religion, to the point where it's like, okay, science and mathematics and literature and those are, those are the real subjects. In theology, well, it's like, okay, if we, You know, if we got to like go rehearse for the Christmas pageant, let's take out theology class, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's that's a huge issue because I I remember experiencing that not in every class, but definitely.
1: Well, I think something that Jordan Peterson has on him is that he's so excited about what he has to say. He's so passionate about it, but you can see that he means it in his very bones. Like almost you can hear it in like his, the quiver in his voice when he's talking about like, right, the existence of God or even like truth. You can hear it deep down. And I think that, um, I mean, we know that there's a crisis in the church with, um, uh just like even Catholics not believing in the true presence or other facets of our faith like if if other Catholics actually not even priests because you devote your life to it so you do believe in that right but if we had other Catholics all of us if each and every one of us Catholics lived our faith yeah and believed it and yeah. with enthusiasm not that cheesy joy like uh we had in a uh, past episodes where it's just like you're always smiling cuz well, like we talked about with the saints they suffered yeah but um if we lived our catholic faith with an understanding and a joy and an enthusiasm that we wanted to just—we just exuded the gospel because we ourselves believed it and every day of our lives was just a reliving of the presence of God, then other people would be attracted to it. The
3: historian Joseph T. Stewart has written a book called Rethinking the Enlightenment, uh, which oh. I've referenced in in my book um, Beheading Hydra. And he makes a very interesting point. He says the church has always had three ways to respond to the secular wisdom or secular— lies that are out there. The first has been a direct head-on confrontation, uh, where they've used all the big guns of the church to try to counter this lie, uh, mm. even sometimes using the literal big guns and going in and having this oh, wow. Spanish Inquisition and, you know, <laughs> mm. burning people and so forth. He says, never works, okay? Yikes. That always yeah. just drives the lies underground. The second response is has been um, accommodation. Well, let's talk, let's dialogue, and let's find out what's good in what you're saying and try to connect with that and see if we can, yeah. you know, in other words, he says, all that does is weaken the faith. He said, but the third example is what you just said, which is living a radical Christian life, an example to others, not showing off, but just living what the way you're supposed to live as a Christian, and Christian communities doing this, and it sets a wonderful example for the rest of the world and then evangelizes. Amen.
2: Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. We really appreciate your Thanks for the time and, and talking to us. Yeah, yeah. really appreciate Good.
3: it. Good to meet you guys.
1: Yes, awesome. So, yeah, thank you guys for listening. See you on the next episode of A Reason for Hope Candid. <laughs>
2: Hey everybody, we got some exciting news.
0: We have a whole new Array of Hope app and channel, a video destination where everyone can find meaningful and inspiring videos and resources to help bring them closer to God. This is available on your desktop, Roku, Apple TV, iPhones and Android mobile phones and tablets. This channel has movies, short, faith-filled segments, live events, and programs. You've got to check it out. Sign up by going to watch.arrayofhope.net and then download the app at the App Store by just typing in Array of Hope. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of A Reason for Hope Candid. Next week's podcast episode features Mario Costabile's interview, with Sister Miriam James Heidland. They'll be discussing some of Sister Miriam's story, the importance of God's love for each of us, how to come to terms with His love for us despite our brokenness, and the immense healing that can be experienced through God's love. If you haven't already, be sure to follow our podcast so you're always in the loop for new releases. Also, make sure to follow Array of Hope on social media and check out our music. You can find all this information in the show notes for this episode. Thanks again for listening and we'll be with you next week for our interview with Sister Miriam James Heidland titled Loved As I Am. Until next time, peace be with you.